So it may be only a small fraction of intelligent life in the cosmos we can actually encounter. And so maybe the ones who are trying to make contact have something like curiosity. But there could be other intelligent creatures out there who decide, you know, they've had their exploratory phase. It's time now to turn inward. And so they just really don't need anyone else. And and those are the questions that we have to ask for ourselves in our future. What do we want to continue to be? Uh, Or do we want to shift to being something else? Historically, we have been explorers. From the time we left Africa and spread out across all the continents, we've gone to the depths of the oceans. Where do we go but up? Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. Now, Anson, set the scene for us. Where are we? Explain this noise. (laughs) Well, we're in my beautiful screened porch with a fire you built Mm -hmm. in our outdoor fireplace. And the tree frogs are going crazy right now. Uh, We're blessed on this property to have wetlands all up the center of it and the biodiversity is just incredible and uh i guess the the tree frogs are are letting everybody know that they're awake (laughs) and that they're claiming their territory and they're open for mating i guess yeah they are i'm I'm so like originally i put off this recording for a long time because i wanted i thought we were going to be sitting under the stars and considering the stars (laughs) But it's raining. We can still consider the stars without actually looking up at them. But then I thought, this is actually kind of better, because what's happening right now, what we're listening to, is communication. Yeah. And it's a communication that is still pretty alien to us and pretty foreign. I hate to interrupt myself, but it is very appropriate that while editing this episode about the preferred modes of communication between animals, I discovered the frogs in the background here like to communicate at around 2.9 kilohertz because their ears are tuned to that frequency. Now, listen as I apply a notch filter at 2.9 kilohertz to cancel that frequency out. I'm try to get you to do your best Shatner and say the very first word of the very original Star Trek. Well, I saw the, the, the header on your uh, your cue card here that you have on your editing system. It just says space. And I in my head, I went, the final frontier. That's right. And that's where we're headed. I have this theory about space. Okay. Space. Yeah. Here's something you need to know about space. All right. I'm ready. There is a lot of it. (laughs) There's so much unknown up there. And throughout the evolution of our species, we've looked up at the stars and wondered what they were. And they teased us with their mystery because they cannot be investigated with our senses of touch, taste, smell, or hearing. But curiously, we've always seemed convinced there was some other consciousness up there. We used to see the stars as the fires of wandering sky hunters, and then gods, and then aliens. And through fire, art, prayer, light pulses, what have you, we've been asking, is anyone out there? Our guest today is Douglas Vakanch, an astrobiologist, researcher, 
and founder of Medi. And although he is asking this question in a big way, the Great Black Void doesn't return many calls. It's an endeavor that might discourage a man with the wrong temperament. But Doug came of age at a time in our nation's history when we were very optimistic about our prospects in space. Despite that, the vast stretches of the unknown and the unanswered and the unfinished still far outstrip our collective comprehension. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. For me, it was growing up as a kid in the 1960s, and um, space was the area where we were making a lot of progress. I mean, we had a country that said, we're going to do the inconceivable, and in less than a decade, land humans on the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. By the time I was 12 or 13, I started hearing about this search for life on other planets. Maybe there's life on Mars, and at some point we would have a, uh, a mission to go to Mars to look for life there. But the more we learn about our own solar system, the more we think, yeah, there could be microbial life somewhere, but no intelligent life. So, unfortunately, you can't use the Apollo Saturn V rocket to launch you to any civilization around a nearby star. And so you, you can't make contact uh, realistically by using the spacecraft. The engine's now building up to 7.7 million pounds of In order to understand why you can't get there from here, it is worth a small mental exercise to consider the vast distances between the stars. The scale of our solar system has been distorted by classroom posters that huddle all the planets in a neat little neighborly line. But if you wanted to really draw the solar system to scale with uh, the Earth, let's say, the size of a pea, Jupiter would be a thousand feet away, and Pluto would be a mile and a half away and the size of a bacterium, so you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. Wow. On this same scale, Proxima Centauri, our nearest star, would be 10,000 miles away. And traveling at the speed of light would get us there in just over four light years. But the fastest man-made object are the Voyager space probes traveling at 35,000 miles per hour. And at that speed, we wouldn't make Proxima Centauri for over 81,000 years. Wow. Or over 2,700 human generations. These numbers are not really fathomable. <laughs> no, they're not. I wish I could go in a spacecraft to Proxima Centauri. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. But we already have the tools to get there by radio. The year before I was born, that was the first search for extraterrestrial intelligence, 1960. Astronomer Frank Drake used a radio telescope in Greenbank, West Virginia, and for about 140 hours looked at two nearby sun-like stars to see if there's any life, uh, if they're sending radio signals. 
This pioneering work by American astronomer and astrophysicist Frank Drake later matured into what is now known as SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. But passively listening for signals from outer space seemed just that, a little too passive. And soon enough, a more active approach was proposed, METI, or Messaging for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And the two approaches have had an uneasy partnership. I was at the SETI Institute for 16 years, where I was director of interstellar message composition. And for years, many of us have talked about um, not just listening for signals from the stars, but actively transmitting. And so SETI is a difficult project to fund because we don't know if there's anyone out there to find. But then about 15 years ago, a new way of looking arose, um, looking for brief laser pulses. And actually, the funding is all the better uh, now that we have a couple of approaches. You know, I, I think the biggest misconception about METI, about sending intentional messages, is that we're frustrated because we haven't found anything. Uh, you know, we've been looking for 50 years, we haven't found anything, so we have to start. Well, well, that's not at all the case. I mean, our organization, even though we're known for our messaging, um, we're collaborating with um, SETI observatories, optical SETI observatories in Panama and Michigan. We think we should be doing both. I don't think we should falsely separate transmitting and, uh, and listening. Listening and messaging. It seems reasonable you need to do both if you were serious about finding ET. And you need some big tools, such as the Arecibo Telescope, have you been? No. Where is it? In Arecibo, Puerto Rico. No, no, no I've, never, I've never been. It's kind of a mind-boggling thing. It's huge. It's 500 meters wide, almost a third of a mile. The telescope? Yeah. It, it doesn't... That's why... Oh, it's, a, it's like a... Okay, so it's a dish. It's a radar right, dish. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and it's built into a valley outside San Juan, Puerto Rico. And it's so big... It really can't be aimed, so it relies on the Earth's rotation to sweep out a 360-degree narrow slice of the sky. And it's from this place that Frank Drake sent our planet's first intentional message back in 1974 in a signal lasting three minutes. The target Frank chose was whatever was overhead when they were doing this commemoration of the dish. That's why they did this. They, they, they had refurbished the dish, and they were going to have a big celebration, two in the afternoon in San Juan or outside of San Juan. What's, what's overhead? It was a globular cluster of stars called M13. And from a perspective of communication, there's only one problem with it. It's 25,000 light years away. That means we don't get a reply back for 50,000 years. So the target chosen was one of convenience. I think the reason it was three minutes long is that the Arecibo telescope can be... Its, its axis of direction is only like, I think, like 10, 15 degrees, I think, in mm -hmm. the direction. Mm -hmm. So it can it could only track, you know, 15 degrees or so to, to target this globular cluster 25,000 light years away. And by that point, the Earth's rotation had carried it beyond its ability to, to re-aim. But I still don't know what the message was. Oh, we're getting to it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> to tell you the truth... I think what was in the Arecibo message might be next episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a cliffhanger. All right. 
And the key is to start small, but to make it sustain transmissions. So for example, to begin transmitting, and then for even a couple hours, two, two and a half hours, and then go back the next day and transmit again, and then go back the next day and transmit again, and then go back six months later and transmit again. Why the repetition? Because like you pointed out, what if the aliens are asleep on the first attempt? <laughs> what, if they, what if they're running the vacuum cleaner? or have their earphones in. You have to give them multiple opportunities so that when one of them does hear, they can turn to their buddy and say, shh, did you hear that? And it'll happen again. Right. We get signals from space all the time, but without intentional repetition, who knows what it was? This was the case back in 1970s when we received the very high-intensity signal from outer space, the so-called wow signal. And it was the signal that was just off the charts in terms of its intensity. And the reason we keep on talking about it is because there's a great visual to use in TV documentaries about it. There's a printout with the word wow written in the margin. But as a, as a, a, a credible SETI signal, it just doesn't make the cut because it was only seen once. And so nowadays, uh, we get wow signals all the time. It's just now we have the technology to go back again and say, do I still see it? Do I see, you know, it's kind of like the cell phone ad. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? We're not, we're not seeing it over and over again. So that's why as we plan our Medi transmissions, we have to repeat over and over. We don't want the extraterrestrials to be in the situation we were with a wow signal. You saw it once, but what do I make with this? Now remember, we need two things, repeatability and ideally with a star system close enough to converse with within our lifetimes. So picking the right star system to message has become critical. And it would just so happen, we are living in a golden age of exoplanet discovery, which makes the present moment in searching for and messaging ET the most promising it has ever been. Because we can pinpoint star systems that have planets in the so-called Goldilocks zone. And guess what? What? They're common. Really common. Really? We used to think, well, isn't our solar system special? We've got a planet around our star. Guess what? They all do. <laughs> In our own galactic backyard, you know, within 10 light years, there are a number of stars that we already know to have planets, and they're in a habitable zone. Now, uh, these tend to be super-Earths. They're a little bit bigger than the Earth. What we know from observations with the Kepler um, Space Telescope is that virtually all stars have planets. I mean, this is a game changer. So in a sense, you don't even have to know for sure if this particular star has planets to think that it, it probably does, just on statistical mm -hmm. grounds. And, and not only that, but you mentioned the Goldilocks zone, where the, it's not too hot, not too cold, just right for liquid water. Maybe one out of five stars has a planet there. In fact, uh, we discovered a, a system called TRAPPIST-1, which is 40 light years from Earth, seven planets at least, and three of them are in the habitable zone. Wow. And it gets better yet because, so the habitable zone means you, you think of a planet that's just the right distance from its star, but now another alternative is to go out, so in our solar system, out to the planets Saturn and Jupiter, which are far enough out that they're outside the habitable zone. It's too cold out there. Um, but 
there are moons around those planets that are generating heat from within. So there could be liquid water under these icy capped uh, surfaces of these moons, and they might even be habitats for life. And and it's almost anywhere you care to look. Yeah. Every time the Kepler points at a solar system, up oh, there's another one. There's another one. Yeah, they're they're common. They're everywhere. And the fact that we can even talk about planets in terms of their geology and their atmosphere as real places with living histories like our own planet is largely due to the efforts of my hero, Carl Sagan, <laughs> a name. That is kind of universally beloved. He's like the Mr. Rogers of astrophysics. Oh, yeah. Carl um, is known for being a, a popularizer, but it, it, it really um, downplays his role as an original thinker in the early days. I mean, uh, coming up with the idea that the, the temperature of Venus might be 800 degrees because of this greenhouse effect. I mean, he was a leading planetary scientist when there were no planetary scientists. I mean, astronomers, astronomy means looking at the stars. There's no clear-cut place for people who want to look at the planets, Mars and Venus. I mean, that's geologists, right? Well, but geologists study the Earth. Well, it's not astronomers because they're not stars. So he actually helped create the field of planetary science. Then when NASA had the ability to send spacecraft there, you could actually get there and, and gather some good data. But in those earliest days, he had to do all of this from afar. Yeah, I, I think he uh, epitomizes the mindset that we need to have. Um, an imagination, a hopefulness, but a ruthless demand for the facts. It is constantly a tension to have both of those, but it's only by having that tension, um, by being able to risk imagination, but then to, um, uh, to subject your hopes and desires to the data. I mean, everyone in this business wants there to be extra trust. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like the, the old Mulder. I want to believe. But there's the scully side of me that says, what's the evidence, Mulder? What's the evidence? And if we don't hold both of those, we don't have science. But if we only focus on the evidence that's here and now, if, if we limit ourselves to what we know will work, we would never know about exoplanets. 30 years ago, Bill Baruki at NASA was saying, well, you know, there's a way that we could actually detect these minute dips of light. If we happen to see a planet that just happens to be lined up so that as it passes in front of its star, there's just this tiny dimming that we detect from Earth. And people say, yeah, well, I don't know, whatever. But he did it. And he had no evidence whatsoever that there are planets out there. He had to assume they were run his experiment and see if there are. And now we know they're everywhere. That opened a gigantic door. Yeah. Now, the Carl Sagan's novel, Contact, which he had his own fascinating imagining of first contact with an alien intelligence. Have you had your own? Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't so much. Yeah, so, so Carl Sagan's idea was you make contact with the aliens and there's this wormhole. Um, so I haven't. You know, I, I, I think the impact, and, and maybe it's because of what I expect the impact to be. First of all, I don't think it's going to unfold like it does in the movies where all of a sudden it's clear, oh, the aliens are sending us a signal. 
I expect for months there's going to be a debate. Is this really from ET? You know, I I wish as in contact they would send us those prime numbers. I'm not counting on it. So I, I suspect it's going to be a long time before we even know for sure whether there's a signal. And it's actually similar to what we saw a couple of years ago with a, a, a star that Kepler picked up an unusual signal from. So uh, Kepler looks at 150,000 stars, and from one of them that's 1,500 light years away, it saw this dimming. But whereas if we look at a typical star and there's a huge planet, say the size of our Jupiter or Saturn that passes in front of it, the, the intensity of the light decreases by less than 1%. But we can still detect that. Much more difficult with a planet the size of Earth because it's just so much smaller. But something was going in front of this star that made dips happen at 20%. Or, and it wasn't a regular pattern. You know, if someone's looking at our sun with their own Kepler, if an alien has a Kepler, they're going to see the Earth every 365 days dipping because it's a regular pattern. Nothing like that was happening with the star that's called Boyajian star, named after Tabitha Boyajian. Um, and so there was speculation. Maybe aliens put this huge megastructure in the orbit. Dyson and that's sphere. The Dyson sphere right. is zipping around in front of it. Uh, and so we've examined it. And, you know, there's still no clear answer. But I, I think in the same way uh, that we have looked at Boyajian star and said, well, you know, it could be an extraterrestrial, but we got a lot of other things we need to rule out. That's what will happen even if we do get a signal from an extraterrestrial, unless it's something really clear like uh, prime numbers. In 1967, we had this something that seemed like it was a, a, something from space that nature couldn't create, this periodic pulsing. And scientists were getting ready to announce it. And they, they nicknamed it LGM, Little Green Men. <laughs> but then they found another one. And now today we know them as pulsars. As we search for intelligence, I, I think what we find is that the, the universe is a lot freakier than we could imagine. It turns out all the freakiness we've seen so far is actually natural. So... We know where E.T. could be. Our sun is relatively new, so other civilizations have had plenty of time to find us and send us a message. So, what's with the silent treatment? There's this long-standing explanation for why we haven't been contacted. So the, the big puzzle is it's called the Fermi Paradox. Yeah. Uh, Enrico Fermi, Italian physicist, 1950, said, you know, if they're out there, where are they? So. How do we explain the silence? To understand the Fermi Paradox, we enlisted the help of Georgina Torbett, a science writer for Digital Trends Magazine, who spoke to us from Berlin and helped explain some of the theories that might explain. Why the silence? So, basically, the Fermi Paradox is a, a question that physicists have been asking um, for decades now, and, and the upshot of it is, given that it seems unlikely that humanity is somehow just special or totally unique or that we were placed here by some higher power if you assume that's not the case then okay there must be it's likely at least that there's intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy 
And so the question is, why ha is there no evidence of intelligent life ever contacting us here on Earth? And there's a lot of different approaches to how to answer this question. Um, many of them come in the form of uh, issues about distance. The galaxy is so large that even if a spacefaring race developed, it would take so long for them to reach across the galaxy that the, the galaxy might cease to exist before that would happen. So there's, there's a limit on the age of the galaxy. So for a while, the distance problem seemed like a good reason why we haven't heard from E.T. But Georgina goes on to tell me about a new theory that makes that big problem at least a little smaller. And this new model by Jonathan Carroll Nellenbach says that, okay, but what you need to remember is that stars themselves move. Our sun has already gone, traveled around the Milky Way 50 times in the course of its life. So because stars are always in motion, then you would actually, any species that did have spacefaring capabilities would come into contact with a lot of other stars. But the movement of stars is such that even a civilization which didn't explore hugely far beyond the bounds of their home solar system would in fact come into contact with a lot of other points in the, gal in the galaxy during its motions. And so maybe a good way to think of it is if you, you know, when you, you pull the plug from a bathtub and all the water swirls around it, if you, if you dropped a, a series of tiny rubber ducks around it and watched them swirl, some ducks would be coming closer to each other and some would be going further apart because they're all part of this sort of swirling motion. This complicates things. If distance is not quite the barrier we thought it was, then what are the other answers to the Fermi paradox? One, they may already be here, but choose not to interact with us because... I don't know, they're shy. Or have decided we are so dangerous as a species that they keep us cordoned off from our galactic neighbors. Another solution? They don't exist. Or at least not in any form we can communicate with. They have no technology, or they killed themselves, or went extinct, and maybe intelligence in the universe is rarer than we presume. Finally, another idea. They are there. They hear us but do not think our noises are a sign of intelligence or we just aren't up to their standards yet. So they are studying us until they get to know us a little better. This is the so-called zoo hypothesis. Yeah. The other metaphor I keep thinking of is the two fish swimming in the lake bank and they look up, see a fisherman and one fish says to the other, should we tell him? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Explain the joke. <laughs> See, if I don't get it, then there's probably aliens who aren't going to get it either. So explain this joke. He doesn't know. <laughs> He's operating in ignorance. Okay. This will blow his mind if we know he knows we're here. And the fisherman is actually fishing mm -hmm. the whole time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. You just repeated the punchline. I'm still trying to. There's probably people at home following along <laughs> thinking I'm an idiot. But for some reason, I'm not getting it. Um, well, listening back to that, I'm not, I'm not sure I get it either. Uh, 
let me modify it a little bit with your example and call it the aquarium hypothesis now. So there are two fish that are talking with one another and an ichthyologist here on earth looks at them and they're studying them. It's all very interesting. But what if a perch turns right toward you and starts bubbling out a series of prime numbers. Or so you're going to treat that. You're not going to use a hook on that perch. No, it's an important perch. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important perch. But so far, all we have been doing for the extraterrestrials is talking with one another, and it's like, well, okay, here's Howard Stern. Here's the nightly news. We've we've been there. We've done this. We've seen that. But what if we instead say, okay, now in addition to all of this babble that's coming out that we're creating for one another, here's a powerful intentional signal to you that says, we want to make contact. And the question that we're exploring in sending intentional messages is, is that enough to get a response back? Maybe yes, maybe no, but it's a new experiment that we can do. Okay, now I remember what we were talking about. We were, we were At the time, we were talking about um, the, the critics of, of Medi mm-hmm. saying that this could be potentially dangerous, mm-hmm. that trying to message an alien civilization that could be far, far beyond us technologically could be a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look what happened to the American Indians oh, when the okay. Europeans came over, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the metaphor that I was creating is two fish looking at a fisherman and saying, should we tell him? Got the it. obvious answer is no. <laughs> Got it. Because they're potentially making themselves known to a much <laughs> right. stronger, much more superior, technologically and superior. And that's why I love Doug's answer, mm-hmm. is that if, if that fisherman sees a fish bubbling out prime numbers, he's not going to he's not gonna mm-hmm. want to cook that fish. He's going to want to save that fish and show it to other fishermen. But wouldn't it save the fish? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So when he said when the one fish turns to the other and says, "Well, no, that was my metaphor." Uh huh. And then he made another one. He said, "Because me saying, you know, it's an obvious danger." And he says, "But what if one of those fish started Uh bubbling out prime numbers? The fisherman is not going to cook and eat that fish. It's a special fish." Now I get it. But now we're we're assuming that (laughs) us understanding what prime numbers are is a really (laughs) special thing. Maybe it's not. And that goes to his point about not just passively sending signals and what people in his field called uh, radio leakage. It's just, like you said, Howard Stern in the nightly news. There's all kinds of stuff going out there, but it hasn't been packaged and designed for alien ears. It could just be static. It could be noise to them. It's too dense. It's too weird. It's, it could, they may not understand that this is us saying hello. Wasn't right? there, but wasn't there a Doritos contest <laughs> where they bought time... On maybe Arecibo, and they had a contest uh, to come up with the best Doritos slogan or commercial to be beamed out into the universe. I don't know. And so there is a somewhere on the radio waves, there's a Doritos commercial directed at extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm, I'm going to look this up. I'll find out what it was. Oh, and, and, and while you do that. I will say that these powerful and intentional messages that we are sending them, some of which may or may not include Doritos commercials, are the mission behind Doug's new project at the Medi Institute. We launched as an organization in 2015, and we laid out our strategic plan. What are our goals by the end of 2018? Our commitment is by the end of 2018 to begin transmitting. We have not begun yet. Um, And we'll start with a handful of nearby stars 
And the key is to start small, but to make it sustain transmissions. So for example, to begin transmitting, and then for even a couple hours, two, two and a half hours, and then go back the next day and transmit again, and then go back the next day and transmit again, and then go back six months later and transmit again. When we recorded this interview a year and a half ago, Doug had not yet begun sending messages, but now that some time has passed and they've begun sending messages, maybe there's been enough time to hear something back. I'm kidding. There's no way we've heard anything back. (laughs) In the next episode, we'll catch up with Doug and see if anyone or anything has answered his call. And we'll get into the controversy of whether or not we should be saying anything at all. Next time. On the well. Oh, no. I I think I may have found the Doritos message. This is much more important. Here, hold on. (laughs) The advertisement, it says here, the advertisement for Doritos tortilla chips was being messaged towards a solar system in the Ursa Major constellation, just 42 light years from Earth. And the message was, I I thought it was just a message. Oh, it's it's a 30-second commercial. And it's a bunch of tortilla chips making a, like a tribal circle and bowing to a, a big can of dip. And then they jump back in the bag because they're scared the human came back in the room. And then the human finds one of the chips in the dip and eats it. So we're basically telling aliens that... That we're yummy? <laughs> that we're trying to escape the clutches of giant cannibals. Or that we're best served with cheese. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Yes. <laughs> Come and get it. Come and get it. Get back on the menu, boys. <laughs> so is it too late now to call Doritos and see if we can get like a sponsorship for this episode? Because we have said Doritos like at least several dozen times now. What? Doritos? How many more times can we say it? Doritos, 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 Doritos. How did this happen? I had such lofty goals for this episode, and it ended in a Doritos advert. God damn you. The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode by Brandon Edgens. Special thanks to Doug Vakich for sitting down with us and for speaking on behalf of the entire human race. And thank you to Georgina Torpid for helping us to better understand the details of the Fermi Paradox. Thank you. We're getting close to wrapping up Season 2 of The Well, and we cannot have done it without your support. So if you have not done so already, please go to thewellpod.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Write us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Tweet about us. Share the word on Facebook. Everything really helps. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and have a great week. <laughs>